Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Talk Recorded live. Hey, guys. Uh, so I'm going to be reading this article here by uh, Michael Heiser. It's uh, titled, Does Divine Plurality in the Hebrew Bible Demonstrate an Evolution from Polytheism to Monotheism in Israelite Religion? This is the generally the consensus view among scholars. This is what you will read if you read scholarly material. They all uh, tend to presuppose this same general theme that Israelite religion uh, generally evolved from polytheism. They borrowed it from Canaanite religion, and it progressed into uh, intolerant monotheism where uh, scribes redacted um, later references to said polytheism in the Bible, yet there's still vestiges of it present to where you can... Apparently the scholars think they can... Uh, get get such a evolution out of the Bible. Enough of it's still present within. And I've uh I come to really question this sort of consensus view among scholars. I think it's well basically I think it's nonsense. And uh this article uh basically does a really good job of refuting that. Um so I'm just gonna read this here and then I'll post the link in the uh, show description for you guys. Anyway, so it says, uh, the title of this essay raises a question that is quite current. Now, this, this actually, this article was dated, uh, 2012. So this was, uh, about four years ago now. But, it says, though the question it raises might sound strange to evangelicals who specialize in fields other than the ancient Near East and Hebrew Bible, the present currency of the question derives not only from 19th century critical scholarship that many evangelicals consider methodologically suspect, but from the text of the Hebrew Bible and archaeological discoveries in ancient Syria and Canaan. The focus of this contribution is on the former certain sets of assumptions brought to the biblical text that contribute significantly to manufacturing interpretive problems that allegedly compel the idea that Israelite religious religion evolved toward monotheism. The first set of assumptions concerns the phenomenon of divine plurality in the Hebrew text. The second involves an argument for divine plurality that is imported into the text. I will address both in order. So, first part, divine plurality in the text of the Hebrew Bible. Summary of the problem. Scholars of the Hebrew Bible know that there are a number of instances where Elohim, meaning, quote, God, uppercase, or God, lowercase, is in a generic sense, 
It is accurately translated by the plural, quote, gods, and where such translations are used of an Israelite divine assembly or council under the authority of Yahweh, Psalm 82.1, other terms like gods and sons of God, B'nai Elohim, or sons of the gods and sons of the Most High, also occur in the Hebrew Bible, several of which are used in the context of a heavenly I don't know if I'm going to read all the footnotes either. I might just read the text and you guys can uh, peruse through the footnotes at your own your own discretion. So, since the concept of a divine council is witnessed throughout the ancient Near East among polytheistic religions, it is assumed that a divine council of plural Elohim in the Hebrew Bible is evidence of antiquated polytheism in Israel, Israel's religion. Historical circumstances, we are told, eventually propelled a theological change in the mind of Israel's religious elite. The Divine Council disappeared as Israelite religion achieved the breakthrough to monotheism. To cope with the reality of exile, Israel's religious leadership came to believe Yahweh was intrinsically superior to other gods. Yahweh had used the other nations and their gods to punish Israel. Hence, the biblical writers cast Yahweh as the sovereign of all nations who sentenced the gods of the other nations to death. Psalm 82. Yahweh thus emerged from the exile as the lone God. No others existed. An alleged editorial agenda driven by monotheistic zealot priests and scribes during and after the exile enforced and assured this religious transition via their work on the final redaction of the Hebrew Bible. This new monotheism went beyond monolatry, which allows the existence of other gods but forbids their worship. It is reflected in denial language where the writers have Yahweh proclaim, quote, there is no God besides me, interpreted as meaning Yahweh is the only God that exists. Prior to this evolutionary leap, such statements must be hyperbole. Since such language is known in the religious literature of other cultures, such as polytheistic Mesopotamia. One could ask several questions at this juncture. What is the linguistic justification that denial statements in pre-exilic texts must surely be hyperbol hyperbolic, while the same phrases deny the existence of other gods after the exile? Is it really coherent to say that a pre-exilic Israelite did not truly believe Yahweh was unique and that any language suggesting as much was a deliberate exaggeration? Is it is not an appeal to hyperbole to superimpose a modern skeptical dismissal on an ancient Semite? Why are some of the clearest Examples of a divine council of Elohim, B'nai Elohim, quote, sons of God, found in texts that are dated to the exile by most scholars, e.g. Job 1 through 2. Did it really never occur to Israelites before the exile that Yahweh had command over all nations and their gods? If that presumption is true, why is Yahweh's kingship over the nations found in pre-exilic texts? How could early biblical writers presume that Yahweh could deliver foreign nations to Israel? 
If the idea that no other gods existed emerged only in the exile, why are there 200 references to plural Elohim in the Qumran sectarian literature, many of them in the context of a divine council? Were the Jews of Qumran not monotheist? It is the view of this writer that the consensus reconstruction of an evolution toward monotheism is not compelled by the presence of a divine council of Elohim in the Hebrew Bible. Consequently, the consensus view lacks coherence. The meaning of Elohim for the biblical writers. The proposition put forth here is that biblical writers understood the word Elohim in a way that never created the tensions that motivate the consensus view that we, that what we commonly consider the orthodox monotheism of the biblical writers was the climax of a religious evolution. We are confronted with two phenomena in the Hebrew Bible that propel this misunderstanding. First, the Hebrew Bible does in fact witness the plural Elohim. Second, the existence of those plural Elohim was assumed by the biblical writers and even embraced as part of their theology. Psalm 82.1 is the parade example for both phenomena. Quote, God, or El, or Elohim, stand in the divine assembly in the midst of the gods, plural Elohim. He passes judgment. But how could the biblical writer tolerate the existence of multiple Elohim and yet write denial statements in other passages? Some scholars seek to argue that the multiple Elohim of Psalm 82.1 are humans, but this approach suffers from numerous difficulties. The issue and any related interpretive consternation are resolved by letting the biblical writers inform us as to how they understood the term Elohim by virtue of its usage elsewhere in the Hebrew Bible. There are six figures or entities referred to as Elohim, or quote, gods, in the Hebrew Bible. A, Yahweh, the God of Israel, over 2,000 times. B, the divine beings of Yahweh's heavenly council, Psalm 82, Psalm 89, Deuteronomy 32, 8 through 9, and 43 with the Septuagint and the Qumran texts. C, the gods of foreign nations, e.g., 1 Kings 11.33. D, demons, in Deuteronomy 32.17. E, the disembodied human dead, 1 Samuel 28.13, in relation to uh, the witch of Endor calling up Samuel. Uh, F, the angel of Yahweh, Genesis 35.7. This listing alone should inform biblical scholars of something critical to the discussion, but which seems to have gone unnoticed. The fact that the biblical writers could use Elohim of more than one entity or figure, all of which are elsewhere described in far lesser terms than Yahweh, tells us clearly that they did not exclusively associate the term Elohim with a set of unique attributes. For moderns, that assumption is reflexive. The word G-O-D, or God, immediately takes the mind to the singular being conceived of as the God of the Bible. 
Consequently, the mention of other Elohim conjures unease for the modern interpreter, no matter how clear the biblical text is in regard to this variegated usage. However, the biblical writer did not think about Elohim the way moderns think of God. It would have been absurd to the biblical writers to suggest that a dear departed relative, now an Elohim and Sheol like Samuel, was an ontological par with Yahweh and the Elohim of his counsel. But any argument that insists that toleration of plural Elohim evinces polytheism assumes this logic. If one assumes the biblical writer had a specific set of attributes in mind when describing an entity with the word Elohim, then there is no escape from this point of incoherence. And if one retreats to the argument that Elohim deferred their attributes, then the term Elohim can no longer be associated with a consistent set of attributes. As such, the term can no longer be a proof for polytheism. That worldview would have to be argued on some other basis. This would, in turn, rob the consensus view of its argument that passages describing plural Elohim demonstrate polytheism. The most straightforward way to understand the biblical use of Elohim is to divorce it from attribute ontology. Elohim is more coherently understood as a, quote, place of residence term. The word does not label its referent with a specific set of attributes. It identifies the proper reality domain of the referent. All Elohim are members of the unseen spiritual world, which is their place of residence. In that realm, there is rank, hierarchy, and differentiation of attributes. Yahweh, one of the Elohim, was considered incomparable and unique in terms of his attributes. But that superiority was not conveyed by the word Elohim. Other descriptions of Yahweh and other Elohim oblige that conclusion. And he says down here in a footnote, I have in mind here the claim that Yahweh was responsible for creating the host of heaven. Psalm 33, 6, 148, 1-5, conceived of as divine beings in ancient Near Eastern cosmology. The notion that he commanded the heavenly host, 1 Kings 22:19 19-23, the phrase, quote, Yahweh Sabaoth, or, quote, Yahweh of hosts, used many times in pre-exilic literature, and the use of uh, some Hebrew term and similar phrases for the supremacy of Yahweh as God. Several instances of these phrases occur in pre-exilic texts. An observation that will become noteworthy as this essay continues. For example, quote, Yahweh, he is the God, i.e. par excellence. 1 Kings 8.60, He is the God, 2 Samuel 7.28. You are the God, in reference to Yahweh, Isaiah 37.16. Quote, Yahweh is the God, Joshua 22:34. This is going to become noteworthy uh, because you'll find that another generally consensus view among scholars is that Yahweh is not the highest deity in the Bible, which uh, I've wrestled with, but I've come to find extremely problematic and inconsistent uh, when I 
take the Bible in its entire context and read it. Uh, especially if you read it with the divine name present, because all throughout the Bible, Yahweh is declared as the Most High. Uh, actually, there's dozens of verses that literally say Yahweh is the Most High in Isaiah, Psalms, etc., etc. So I I find this claim extremely problematic, and I find um, the arguments for it extremely ad hoc and uh, circular. Uh, They beg, they beg their own, they beg the question. They assume their own point to be proved. they make a lot of assumptions that we're gonna we're gonna read here are not um, <clears throat> based on uh, firm foundations. Very, they're very um, tenuous. So let's see here. I gotta find out where I was. Uh, okay. Succinctly, Yahweh is an Elohim, but no other Elohim is Yahweh. Yahweh was not one among equals. He was species unique. But all Elohim were members of the spiritual realm, the realm whose inhabitants are by nature disembodied. This was the theology of those who composed and edited the Hebrew Bible. In view of the intellectual distance between the present time and the Milu of biblical Israel, the modern term, quote, monotheism, coined in the 17th century as an antonym to, quote, atheism, is deficient for describing the beliefs of the ancient Israelites who produced the Hebrew Bible, since it carries the baggage of identifying, quote, God with a single set of attributes held only by Yahweh. However, the intention behind the term to affirm the existence and uniqueness of of the God of Israel reflects beliefs the biblical writer would have embraced. This simple but profound shift in perspective undercuts most of the arguments upon which a presumed evolution toward monotheism is considered necessary. There is no need for orthodox Yahwism to have evolved anywhere. While archaeological material and the testimony of human experience convincingly demonstrate that human beings will invariably hold a wide range of conceptions about any deity presumed to exist, it is flawed thinking to presume that because some Israelites would have thought in polytheistic or henotheistic terms, where Yahweh was not unique in his attributes, that all Israelites, inclusive of the biblical writers, must have thought in such terms. This notion requires the incoherent assumption that the biblical usage of Elohim always telegraphed the same attribute ontology, no matter the referent. The meaning of the, quote, denial statements in the Hebrew Bible. If the above understanding of Elohim is intelligible, what do we make of the various statements on the part of the biblical writers that there was, quote, no God besides Yahweh? What follows is a brief summary of material this writer has put forth elsewhere regarding this question. The evolutionary consensus with respect to Israelite monotheism regularly proposes that passages in which plural 
Elohim or B'nai Elohim, quote, sons of God, are found constitute proof of vestigial polytheism in the Hebrew Bible. One passage that is absolutely critical to the evolutionary view is Deuteronomy 32, 8-9, where the, quote, Most High divides the nations and distributes them according to the number of the sons of God, with the Septuagint and the Qumran. This theology is echoed in Deuteronomy 4.19-20. Deuteronomy 32.17 adds the notion that lesser divine beings, the, quote, demons or Shadim, are Elohim. That the, quote, host of heaven mentioned in Deuteronomy 4.19-20 are to be identified with the gods of Deuteronomy 32 is made clear by Deuteronomy 17.2-3, where God forbids the worship of the sun, moon, and host of heaven, since they are, quote, other gods. It is clear, then, to the consensus adherence that these portions of Deuteronomy embrace the vestigial polytheism out of which Israel eventually was to evolve. What is at at times omitted from the discussion, however, is that both Deuteronomy 4 and 32 contain denial statements, declarations that the consensus argues reflect the climax of the monotheistic evolutionary trajectory. Deuteronomy 4.35, quote, You are shown these things so that you might know that the Lord, he is the God. Beside him there is no other. Deuteronomy 4.39, quote, Know therefore this day, and lay it to your heart, that Yahweh, he is the God, in heaven above and on the earth beneath. There is no other. Deuteronomy 32:39. Quote, See now that I, even I, Yahweh speaking, am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. These sorts of denial statements constitute the heart of the idea that, by the time of Deutero-Isaiah, in whose material, parentheses Isaiah 40 through 55, such denials are frequently found. Israelite religion had dispensed with the belief that other Elohim existed. How, then, can these same statements appear in passages that, according to to the consensus view, point readers to the older polytheistic worldview of Israel. The juxtaposition of such denial statements alongside affirmations of many Elohim is typically dismissed as editorial predilection, where a late redactor who had reached the intellectual realization that only one God existed interjected these denials as a means to inform or remind those reading older biblical material that the only God was Yahweh. In effect, rather than change the text, a redactor would guide readers to the monotheistic conclusion by such insertions. This explanation fails, though, when one considers the fact that texts considered late in Israel's history, such as the book of Job, include unambiguous divine counsel scenes, Job 1-2, through without any accompanying monotheistic rhetorical, quote, correction. It is also inconsistent with Second Temple texts, such as the Dead Sea Scrolls, that have over 200, re- 200 references to plural Elohim. 
Additionally, some consensus scholars would object to the idea entirely since they believe that during and after the exile, a zealous scribal campaign was undertaken to remove polytheistic material from the Hebrew Bible. So somehow they missed all these verses that they also use, on the other hand, to prove that polytheism was in the Bible. Makes sense, doesn't it, guys? It is much more coherent to say that the biblical writers believed in the existence of many Elohim, that is, after all, how they used the term, but that the God of Israel was incomparable with respect to the other Elohim. Now, uh, you'll notice the title of my show, guys. It's kind of a term I created myself. And the reason I created this is because after reading the Bible again and uh, really researching this issue, I find that all these terms used to uh, define the Bible's theology uh, sort of fail uh, to really accurately describe it. Uh, terms monotheism, polytheism, monotheism. So I sort of created my own term because I think uh, that's what needs to be done. I think the Israelite, the biblical religion was uh, unique, extremely unique. And uh, I don't think monotheism, polytheism, or anotheism uh, adequately describe it. Uh, I think I agree with Heiser's assessment of anotheism and that it's it's too ambiguous. Um, the term anotheism, because it, it can imply that the other gods are on the same ontological level with each other, meaning that uh, some of the lesser gods can supplant uh, some of the uh, gods above them. And I feel that that is even even if the impl- even the implication of that existing in the term, the term is is far too ambiguous uh, for what the the Bible says about Yahweh in comparison to these other gods. He's completely he's transcendent. To, the, to these other gods are completely dependent upon Yahweh. There is no. There, there might be other gods, but there is no god like Yahweh. That's how the Bible describes it. Um, which is why I actually don't have a problem with people who uh, claim uh, to be monothe- monotheist, that the Bible is monotheistic. I really don't have a problem with that, because there, wa- there was no god like Yahweh in the Bible, you know? Um So I feel like one has to create a new term because anotheism is too ambiguous and monotheism uh, is far too uh, narrow to uh, accurately reflect the Bible and its uh, you know uh, plurality of divine beings that are dependent upon Yahweh, totally. Um, Anyway, let's see. Where was I? 
Okay, uh, it is much more coherent to say that the biblical writers believed in the existence of many Elohim, that is, after all, how they used the term, but that the God of Israel was incomparable with respect to other Elohim. That faith assertion would seem to be the clear point of the definite article prefixed to Elohim in both Deuteronomy 4.35 and 39. Yahweh was the God par excellence. The same pattern follows through Isaiah 40 through 66, the other section of the Hebrew Bible considered fertile territory for asserting that Israelite religion came to believe no other gods existed. If one examines the use of denial formula in the Hebrew Bible, the approach proposed in this article is shown to be quite workable. Drawing on the work of Nathan McDonald, C.H. Williams, and Hans Rickenmacher, it can cogently be argued that these formulae are used in contexts that either affirm the existence of other gods in some way, or that require interpreting the formulae as statements of incomparability, not denials of existence. Two illustrations of the latter will suffice here. In Isaiah 47, 8 through and 10, Babylon proclaims, quote, I am and there is none else beside me. It would be nonsensical to take the denial formula as speaking of non-existence. The claim is not that Babylon is the only city in the world, but that she has no rival. That is, the formulaic expression points to incomparability. It is noteworthy that these passages are part of Deutero-Isaiah, the corpus upon which the consensus view relies most heavily for its insistence that denial formulae prove that the biblical writers have rejected the existence of other deities. The same circumstance is found in Zephaniah 2.15, where Nineveh makes the identical claim. Once again, the formula cannot constitute a denial of the existence of other cities. The point being made is very obviously incomparability. <clears throat> By way of summary on the first set of assumptions that drive the consensus view, <clears throat> the fact that certain passages in the Hebrew Bible include plural Elohim only constitutes proof for polytheism if one binds the term to a specific set of attributes. This approach has been shown to be flawed. The resulting allowance for plural Elohim does not contradict denial statements in the Hebrew Bible since those statements speak of Yahweh's incomparability rather than denying the existence of other Elohim. This is quite agreeable to the view of this paper that the biblical writers saw Yahweh as without ontological equal among Elohim. The discussion now moves to the second set of assumptions. Divine plurality imported into the text of the Hebrew Bible. Summary of the issue. Those who see an evolution toward monotheism in Israelite religion also argue their case from a presumed distinction between Yahweh and Elion, or, quote, the Most High, in the Hebrew Bible, namely in Deuteronomy 32, 8-9 and Psalm 82. <clears throat> In both passages, it is alleged that the biblical writers dropped hints that Yahweh and Elion were once separate deities, a view that leads to the conclusion that Orthodox Israelite theology was once polytheistic. He says down here in a footnote, 
Once again, Mark Smith's comments are representative. Quote, the author of Psalm 82 deposes the older theology as Israel's deity is called to assume a new role as judge of all the world. Yet at the same time, Psalm 82, like Deuteronomy 32, 8 through 9, preserves the outlines of the older theology it is rejecting. From the perspective of this older theology, Yahweh did not belong to the top tier of the pantheon. Instead, in early Israel, the God of Israel apparently belonged to the second tier of the pantheon. He was not the presider God, but one of his sons. And I uh, used to hold to this view. I have since rejected it after reading the Bible again, especially with the divine name present. It's utterly incompatible with the text. There's literally dozens and dozens and dozens of passages in multiple books of the Bible that say in the same sentence that Yahweh is the Most High. Hebrew, El Elyon. Okay? My position is that Elohim, or El, or El Elyon, these are generic names for Yahweh. Uh, before he revealed his personal covenant name of Yahweh to uh, the nation of Israel, which he made a covenant with. That's why he revealed that personal covenant covenant name to them. But I believe that he has a generic name um, that more refers to him as God of all the nations, not just Israel. And that was, that was known as El, or El Elyon. Um, there, there's absolutely no reason in the Bible to to invoke that Yahweh is some separate deity. There's no reason at all. It's completely ad hoc. <laughs> all the passages used for it are totally ambiguous to that interpretation. I mean, you literally have to read that into the passages. You have to completely contradict all these other passages in the Bible you have to completely contradict the entire context of, of Scripture as a whole. You have to presuppose this uh, evolutionary uh, uh, this this evolution that these scholars um, assume the Israelite how Israelite religion developed. It's totally circular. They assume their own point to be proved. Okay. So, let's keep reading. Distinguishing Yahweh and Elion, Deuteronomy 32, 8-9. Quote, When the Most High Elion gave the nations as an inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. But Yahweh's portion is his people, Jacob his allotted inheritance. Okay. The evolutionary view argues that these two verses describe Elion giving Yahweh his portion, or Israel, among the nations. Thus two deities are in view. Yahweh is one of the many sons of Elion, and it is Elion who gives Yahweh Israel. One obvious retort to this perspective is the parallel passage of Deuteronomy 4.19-20. Elion is not mentioned. In verse 20, Yahweh is not given Israel by a presumably higher deity. Rather, the text specifically says Yahweh took his own inheritance. 
This is cast as a sovereign act and would seem to nullify the assumption of two deities. It is at this point that the card of the presumed dating of Deuteronomy and its constituent parts is played. Although minor disagreements exist among scholars, the formation of Deuteronomy is broadly conceived as including an original core, the codification of religious reforms in Deuteronomy 12 through 26. This core is framed by an introductory exhortation, Deuteronomy 5 through 11, and the addition of the curses and blessings of Deuteronomy 27 through 28 during the exile to explain that horrible event. Chapters 1 through 4 and 29 through 34 are thought to have been added during the exilic or post-exilic periods, but Deuteronomy 32 through 33 are considered independent pre-exilic poems repurposed by the exilic or post-exilic editor. This would mean that Deuteronomy 4:19 through 20 is more recent in Israelite history than Deuteronomy 32:8 through 9. This then is a cru- crucial presumption for arguing that the theology of Deuteronomy 4:19 through 20 is more enlightened in light of the monotheistic evolutionary leap. Another argument used to prove an older polytheistic theology in Deuteronomy 32, 8-9 is the fact that at some point the original reading, quote, sons of God, was altered to, quote, sons of Israel, preserved in the Masoretic text. Verse 43 also contains a reference to plural Elohim that was removed from the Masoretic text. We know about these alterations because the Qumran material preserves the polytheistic reading. The LXX, or Septuagint, translation of, quote, B'nai Elohim, or sons of God, by, quote, angels of God, also allegedly illustrates a theological downgrading of the gods to angels in the wake of the rise of pure monotheism. Accessing the coherence of this presumed separation and evolution. Both the arguments offered in defense of a pre-exilic polytheistic distinction between Yahweh and Elion and a movement toward monotheism are tenuous in that they are driven by assumptions that have readily discernible weaknesses. The text-critical argument is the most obvious and so provides a convenient starting point for assessment. The text-critical issue. Although the deletions that occurred in Deuteronomy 32.8 and 43 do not directly relate to the Elion and Yahweh separation, it is presumed that the alterations of the text were only made because the polytheistic content of the original readings offended scribes who had adopted a militant monotheism. This argument has two weaknesses. It assumes that the monotheistic biblical writers could not abide plural Elohim in the first place, and its argument falls prey to circular reasoning by assuming what it seeks to prove. Regarding the first weakness, the understanding of Elohim covered earlier in this paper undercuts any perceived need on the part of Israelite scribes to rid the text of plural Elohim. The usage of Elohim by the biblical writers demonstrates that they did not connect the term to a unique set of attributes. In fact, even after this presumed editing campaign, both the Masoretic text and the Septuagint retain a number of references to plural Elohim, even in perceptibly late material, e.g. Job 1-2. through This is no surprise if the writers thought of Elohim as indicating residence in the unseen spiritual world. 
Though it is beyond dispute that a scribe altered the text, the facts of the matter are that no one knows when the changes occur, occurred and why, especially when other instances of divine plurality are left untouched. Those who want an evolution to monotheism assume the deletions happened during the exilic or post-exilic period near the point of the alleged monotheistic leap. There is no secure evidence for this. The earliest textual data we have are the Qumran scrolls, which do not witness to the Masoretic text reading. The reading supposedly created by the zealous, monothe the zealous monotheistic scribe in the post-exilic period. Consequently, it could be argued that the allegedly polytheistic Qumran reading preserved the original reading, which survived well after the post-exilic period. The alteration could have been made much later in the Common Era, at the time when the Masoretic Text as we know it was created, circa 100 CE, in the process of textual standardization. The current data do not allow a specific conclusion, and so one ought to be avoided. Even if such evidence was forthcoming and showed the alteration was made in the exilic or post-exilic period, it would not address why the change was made, which is the fundamental issue. <clears throat> why this passage would receive such a change when others did not would remain an open question. Moreover, it is logically flawed to presume that one scribe's reason for an alteration means that all scribes or all Jews shared the editor's theology. The argument that the altered text shows a zeal for militant monotheism against an antiquated polytheism is thus defended on the basis that it must have occurred at a time of monotheistic zeal. The circularity of the argument is transparent. <clears throat> yep. Finally, in regard to the, quote, downgrading of plural Elohim figures to angels in the Septuagint, the motivation is likewise unclear and the data are inconsistent. It is simply a fact of observation that the LXX is uneven in its treatment of plural Elohim as it uses both, quote, gods and, quote, sons of God in passages where the Hebrew would be plural Elohim. The use of, quote, angels of God, therefore, cannot be coherently defended as indicating a theological shift in Jewish thinking about divine plurality. <clears throat> if that were the case, one would expect to find theological consistency in the text of the Hebrew Bible in that regard, especially at a time period as late as that of the creation of the LXX, at least two centuries after the presumed rise of pure monotheism. The Qumran material also mars the neatness of the picture offered by the consensus explanation due to the numerous instances of plural Elohim often in divine council context in, the cor in that corpus. Now, distinguishing Yahweh and Elion. Moving on to whether Yahweh and Elion are separated in Deuteronomy 32, 8-9, this writer has addressed this issue in more detail elsewhere, so what follows are summary points with some new points of critique. First, one notices immediately how Deuteronomy 1-4 through 4 are conveniently dated as post-exilic, and Deuteronomy 32-33 through 33 are likewise conveniently considered independent and pre-exilic. You see how arbitrary and ad hoc this is? 
Those who see Deuteronomy 1 through 4 as post-exilic would say that the reason Deuteronomy 4:19 through 20 has Yahweh taking his inheritance and no mention of other gods is that Israelite religion had evolved away from that belief by the end of the exile. It is therefore utterly crucial for the consensus view for Deuteronomy 1 through 4 to have been composed during the monotheistic innovation. But on what basis is the post-exilic period for Deuteronomy 1-4 through 4 proposed? While there might be textual reasons to see Deuteronomy 1-4 through 4 as written after Deuteronomy 32, both could still be pre-exilic. That is, it can also be the case that textual indications of a later hand might only be brief editorial adaptations, so that both sections could have been largely composed at the same time, the 8th, 7th century B.C. <laughs> So all their arguments also fall into uh, the fallacy of um, begging or uh, affirming the consequent, since they're all use, they're all using induction, which is formally fallacious. They start out with a premise that says, uh, "Well, if uh, Israelite religion evolved from polytheism to monotheism, we should expect to find these." Uh, you know, changes in the Bible. Or we, we should expect to find this trend in the Bible. And then, oh, we do find this trend in the Bible. Oh, so that confirmed, that means that our premise is true. When there could be an infinite number of reasons for why there's this perceived trend in the Bible that they already presuppose to begin with. That is the explanation for it. It could be a multitude of other explanations. Okay? They're assuming their own point to be proved, arguing in a circle. To bring this initial objection into focus, there are certain essential elements for defending a post-exilic date <coughs> for Deuteronomy 1 through 4. Without explicit data arising from the morph morphology, grammar, or syntax found in Deuteronomy 1 through 4, and especially chapter 4, <clears throat> the argument becomes circular. The wording of Deuteronomy 4:19 through 20 shows an evolution from polytheism because Deuteronomy 1 through 4 is to be dated to the post-exilic era, as demonstrated by the monotheistic wording of Deuteronomy 4:19 through 20. Precisely what is it, then, apart from an a priori or a priori assumption of a post-exilic provenance that compels us to see Deuteronomy 1-4 through 4 as not only later than Deuteronomy 32, but deriving from that time period that the consensus view believes birthed intolerant monotheism? <clears throat> On another front, there must be no evidence that would suggest with high clarity that both Deuteronomy 1 through 4 and Deuteronomy 32 are both pre-exilic. It matters not that Deuteronomy 4:19 through 20 is later than Deuteronomy 32a through 9. The crucial issue is that Deuteronomy 4:19 through 20 was composed in light of the religious impulse toward intolerant monotheism that allegedly occurred in the late exilic or post-exilic era. In fact, the central theological idea of Deuteronomy 4:19 through 20 and Deuteronomy 32:8 through 9 that Yahweh alone has sovereign authority over the nations so that he can take Israel as his own to the rejection of the others is found in pre-exilic texts. 
There is therefore no need to view the idea as a late religious innovation that was the result of an evolution out of polytheism. Second, I think it is worth noting that Deuteronomy 32, 8 through 9 never actually says Yahweh received or was given anything. That is, there is no actual description of any interaction between Yahweh and Elion. It is simply assumed. Deuteronomy 3.32.9 merely reads, quote, But Yahweh's portion was Israel, Jacob his allotted inheritance. These are verbless clauses. The idea of Elion giving the subordinate Yahweh his portion actually has to be read into the passage. It is nowhere stated. This is allowing one's presuppositions to guide interpretation. Yep. Third, Deuteronomy 32.6-7 utilizes vocabulary associated with El and Baal in the Ugaritic material to describe Yahweh. This is no surprise since, as is well known by Hebrew Bible scholars, the biblical writers associated epithets and other descriptors of both Canaanite El and Baal with Yahweh, a phenomenon at times used as evidence for an original Israelite polytheism. By all accounts and critical scholarship, this conceptual fusion occurred prior to the 8th century B.C., but note that this fusion is not a fusion of Elion and Yahweh, but of identifying certain attributes of El and Baal with Yahweh. And he says down here in a footnote, This writer argued in his dissertation that Israelite religion retained a divine council structure with a co-regency at the top that mirrors the relationship of El and Baal, but that the biblical writers fill both slots with Yahweh. This conceptual decision reflects a binatarian approach to Yahweh found elsewhere in the Tanakh, featuring an invisible and a, and a visible Yahweh closely co-identified, which involves appearance in human form and at times embodiment. The literary strategies reflect an aversion to polytheism, rule by a co-regency of two distinct deities in favor of rule by Yahweh, enacted in many instances by a co-regent or agent who was, quote, who was but was not Yahweh. This was the conceptual framework for the two powers in heaven theology that emerged in Second Temple Judaism and the High Christology of the New Testament. Yep, you see the exact same theme in the Old Testament and the New Testament. You see Yahweh and then the messenger of Yahweh. The messenger of Yahweh was equated with Yahweh in many passages, but he was also distinct in many other passages. Just like Christ in the New Testament was equated with the Father in many passages, but was distinct in many other passages. Do we really have to evoke that Yahweh is some other God from the God in the New Testament, and that there's actually a God above him, and that you know, yeah, and that the theme in the Old Testament has, therefore has no relation to the theme in the New Testament. Let's just completely disconnect the Old Testament from the New Testament. Just completely divorce the context. There's no running theme between either. I mean, it's just, let's just throw out, let's just, I mean, we might as well just throw the whole Bible in the trash, really. Honestly. I mean, if this is what we're going to invoke, I mean, it just baffles my mind the things that people will appeal to. 
But all this is just to discredit the Bible. It's consistency, and, I mean, you understand these scholars, they don't believe the Bible. So, obviously, that guides their interpretation of these passages. Okay? So, moving on. Some would object at this point that since Canaanite El was the high sovereign and father of the other gods, it makes good sense to have Yahweh subordinate to El, Elion. But it is actually Baal, not El, who, who has the title Elion in Ugaritic material, and above whom is no other. And so the neatness of the presumed correlation is again marred. Isn't that cute? Fourth, presuming a source-critical approach to the Pentateuch, I have to wonder what scholars who distinguish Yahweh and Elion on the basis of Deuteronomy 32, 8-9 do with the J source. Specifically, is J later than Deuteronomy 32? Had J evolved to monotheism? I raise the issue because the event Deuteronomy 32, 8-9 draws upon for the division of the nations is Genesis 11, 1-9, part of the J source. The point is that the ancient J source has Yahweh doing the dividing. How could J have missed the polytheistic outlook known to whoever wrote Deuteronomy 32 when both were pre-exilic? Perhaps it is premature to conclude that the pre-exilic writer of Deuteronomy 32, 8-9 was a polytheist. Oh, and that he distinguished El Elyon and Yahweh. Yeah, okay. Sure. Distinguishing Yahweh from Elion, Psalm 82. Despite the tenuous nature of using Deuteronomy 32, 8-9 and Deuteronomy 4, 19-20 to argue an evolution from polytheism to monotheism, those who hold the consensus view are unmoved, for the, the assumption is absolutely crucial. Without it, there is little in the way of an evolutionary pinnacle. That brings us to Psalm 82. Psalm 82 is part of the Elohistic Psalter, and so it is assumed that where Elohim is used for a singular deity in Psalm 82.1 and 8, the psalm originally read Yahweh. The consensus view argues that the first verse has Yahweh standing in the council of El, the high sovereign in Ugaritic religion. The Elion, or the quote, most high, in verse 6 is presumed to be El from verse 1. The verb lemma, translated, quote, stand in verse 1, is often used in texts whose genre is the covenant lawsuit and depicts one standing before a judge to bring a charge against the plaintiff. In Psalm 82, then, Yahweh is presumed to be playing the role of prosecutor, decrying the corruption of the gods of El's counsel, implying that Yahweh and El are distinct deities. When the reader comes to verse 6, the prosecutor Yahweh refers to the gods as, quote, sons of Elion, not as his own sons. This also implies a separation of Yahweh and Elion, the latter of which is seen as the seated judge in the council courtroom scene. The last verse is then read as the psalmist pleading for Yahweh, or Elohim in the Elohistic text, to rise up and inherit the nations after judging the gods in verse 7. The supposition is that Yahweh was not previously viewed as the global sovereign of the nations. 
The psalm therefore casts Yahweh's elevation as a new idea and a shift in Israelite religion. And he has down here in a footnote. S. Parker states that, quote, There is no question that the occurrences of Elohim in verses 1a and 8 refer, as usually in the Elohistic Psalter, to Yahweh. Yahweh is actually just, quote, one of the assembled gods under a presiding El or Elion. The psalmist then balances this with an appeal to Yahweh to assume the governance of the world. Mark Smith echoes this view, quote, A prophetic voice emerges in verse 8, calling for God, now called Elohim, to assume the role of judge over all the earth. Here Yahweh, in effect, is asked to assume the job of all the gods to rule their nations in addition to Israel. Not surprisingly, the psalm is taken as post-exilic. The message of the psalm is that Israelite religion had evolved to kill off the gods and the divine council in favor of, a, of the new monotheistic innovation where no god but Yahweh existed. So Psalm 82, quote, God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he passes judgment. Quote, how long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked and fatherless? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit the nations. Now, now he writes here, flow of the psalm, according to the evolutionary view. Yahweh, standing in the council of El, Elion, who is the seated judge, in verse 1. Yahweh brings the charge against Elohim of the council, verses 2 through 5, the sons of Elion, of verse 6. Yahweh, who's the one who says, I said, refers to the council Elohim as sons of Elion and pronounces judgment upon them, verses 6 through 7. The psalmist cries out to Yahweh to, quote, rise up and inherit all the nations as their own, verse 8, in the wake of the gods who have been stripped of their immortality, and then see Deuteronomy 32, 8 through 9, where the nations were given as inheritances to the sons of God. Okay. So, distinguishing Yahweh from Elion, Psalm 82. Incoherence in the presumed flow of Psalm 82 that produces distinct deities. The logical incoherence of the evolutionary view is readily ev evident. If we presume Yahweh is the standing prosecutor and Elion is the seated judge in, ver in Psalm 82, things seem workable through verse 5, as Yahweh is bringing accusation. But at verses 6 through 7, there is a problem. The first person, quote, I said, in verse 6, would be Yahweh speaking. But that would in turn mean Yahweh also pronounces the sentence, or the role of the judge, in verse 7. It seems odd to have Yahweh be both prosecutor and judge if a distinct L is present. This observation is important because the evolutionary view wants to distinguish between the prosecutor and judge to achieve two different deities in the passage. 
the solution for the evolutionary view cannot be that Yahweh is doing both tasks, for that begs the very obvious question of why you would need two deities in the scene in the first place. If Yahweh is also doing what the judge is supposed to do, why do we need Elion as the judge? Uh, because we need a totally ad hoc thing to support our presupposed theology that's circular. Uh, uh, yeah, we'll just forget about that. We'll just we'll sweep that under the rug, though. Verse 8 also presents a coherence problem. The psalmist pleads for Yahweh to, quote, rise up and inherit the nations. But was it not Elion who was supposedly seated in the heavenly courtroom as judge? This coherence problem was perceived by David Frankel in a recent article on Psalm 82. Frankel asserts that Yahweh is the speaker in verses 2 through 5, but then, quote, El is the speaker who plays the role of high judge in verses 6 through 8. He also believes that it is El who calls upon Yahweh in the last verse to rise up and rule the nations. Unfortunately, Frankel offers no grammatical or syntactical reasons for a change of speaker in verses 6 through 7 from Yahweh to El. He cannot be blamed for oversight because there are no grammatical or syntactical features to support the argument. Frankel's argument is made on the basis of need, not exegesis. <clears throat> With respect to verse 8, the speaker in verse 8 cannot be Yahweh since it is Yahweh who is addressed. This new speaker appears in verse 6 for Frankel, thus accommodating the issue of verse 8. This writer agrees that verse 8 requires a new speaker, but contra Frankel, that speaker is not L, nor is there a need for a change of speaker in verse 6. Frankel wants L to be speaking in verses 6 through 8, and this need is essential in his attempted solution for resolving the incoherence of seeing two deities in Psalm 82. But there is not a single textual cue that compels this identification that Frankel can marshal. His attempt thus fails if the concern was to root interpretation in the text as opposed to defending the idea of an evolution from polytheism to monotheism. At this point, Frankel and others would ask this writer to make sense of his own view that Yahweh is both prosecutor and judge in the psalm, as well as the speaker in 7. If Mark Smith and many others who argue with him are correct in their assertion that Israelite religion had successfully identified both El and Baal with Yahweh by the 8th century BC, this writer's position is on solid ground. Smith argues for this date on the basis of archaeological data, quote, Asherah, having been a consort of El, would have been, become Yahweh's consort, only if these two gods were identified by this time. This means that El and Yahweh would have been seen as the same deity in Israelite religion by that time, before the exile. Popular religion expressed that belief by having Asherah as Yahweh's wife. She was formerly associated with El, an idea known from inscriptions at Kuntalit are Ashrud and Kerbet El Kalm. As such, casting Yahweh in the El role of judge in Psalm 82 seems quite mundane, especially if the psalm in the 8th century BC. Even the designation, quote, in the Council of El is not at odds with this writer's view. While El, quote, God or El in the phrase Council of El could be adjective in force, adjectival in force, quote, in the divine council. That is not essential to this writer's view. 
since Yahweh and El would have been the same for the psalmist, the use of, quote, El, or God or El, would of no necessity prevent Yahweh from being in view. <clears throat> Against this writer, Frankel would charge that if Yahweh was head of the council at the beginning of the psalm, there would be, quote, little new, new in the call of verse 8 that Yahweh take up the rule of the world. This writer disagrees. The new element is not that Yahweh suddenly becomes sovereign. That idea is pre-exilic, as we shall see momentarily. But that Yahweh is pronouncing his ex-theological ex will to take back the nations he disinherited at, ba at Babel, as described in Deuteronomy 32, 8-9. Yahweh's supremacy over the nations and their gods in pre-exilic texts. The idea that Yahweh's kingship over the gods and their nations is post-exilic, a notion crucial to any defense of an evolution toward monotheism, ignores evidence to the contrary in the Hebrew Bible. For example, the idea is transparently stated in several enthronement psalms that date to well before the exilic period. Psalm 29.1 is instructive. Some scholars, such as F.M. Cross and D.N. Friedman, date the poetry of this psalm between the 12th and 10th centuries B.C. <clears throat> the very first verse contains plural imperatives directed at the, quote, sons of God, or the gods, pointing to a divine council context. Verse 10 declares, quote, Yahweh sits enthroned, the Lord sits enthroned as king forever. In Israelite cosmology, the flood upon which Yahweh sat was the watery covering thought to be over the solid dome. Hold on. The solid dome that enclosed the round, flat earth. This throne obviously did not cover only Israel. As such, it cannot coherently be denied that the author viewed the Gentile nations under the dome and flood as being under the authority of Yahweh as well. This verse thus reflects the idea of world kingship. The thought is echoed in the Song of Moses, also among the oldest poetry in the Hebrew Bible. In Exodus 15.11, we encounter the rhetorical, quote, Who is like you, O Yahweh, among the gods? Followed in verse 18 by, quote, Yahweh will reign forever and ever. As F.M. Cross noted over 30 years ago, the kingship of the gods is a common theme in early Mesopotamian and Canaanite epics. The common scholarly position that the concept of Yahweh as a reigning or king is a relatively late development in Israelite thought seems untenable. This writer would agree, but would add this question. If pre-exilic Israelites, in fact, believed that the nations were under the authority of other gods, in Deuteronomy 32, 8-9, how is it that scholars who promote the evolutionary view presume that the biblical writer's statement, who is like you, O Yahweh, among the gods, would exclude Yahweh's supremacy over the nations of those gods? Other pre-exilic texts can be brought to this to the discussion. Psalm 47.2 not only declares that Yahweh is a great king over the, all the earth, but in so doing it equates Yahweh with Elion. Quote, For the Lord Yahweh, the Most High, a great king over all the earth. Verse 7 adds, Quote, God is the king of all the earth. This psalm belongs to the category labeled by scholars as, quote, enthronement psalms. 
J.J.M. Roberts argued that the psalm should be situated in the, quote, cultic celebration of Yahweh's imperial accession based on the relatively recent victories of David's age. Other psalms likewise equate Yahweh and Elion in the process of declaring him king of the nations and their gods. Psalm 97 is illustrative, although most critical scholars classify this psalm as late. As with Deuteronomy 1-4, through 4, however, there are no morphological or grammatical criteria for doing so, only the presumption that the religious outlook of the psalm must be post-exilic, since it contains an idea associated with enlightened monotheism. The fact that Psalm 97 utilizes storm theophany imagery as fine warrior motif, known to be early, is lost in the discussion. Psalm 108.5 is also noteworthy as it proclaims, quote, Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. Critics take the psalm as, ex- as exilic or post-exilic, but then apparently ignore the similar phrasing in Isaiah 6.3. One is forced to ask why this language in Psalm 108.5 dictates a post-exilic date when the same thought is communicated in First Isaiah, which is clearly pre-exilic. It could be posited that the psalmist adopted the language from the early Isaiah, but that is precisely the point. The content is early. A narrative sampling of the same idea is readily available in the Deuteronomistic history. The writers of the Deuteronomistic history presume that Yahweh controlled the nations targeted for removal from Canaan. How could Israel's pre-exilic writers express the belief over and over again that Yahweh would defeat and banish the nations in Israel's land if they had no inclination to believe that he was supreme over the nations and their gods? No scholar would date the Deuteronomistic history to after the exile. Finally, an Ugaritic parallel is worth consideration. If we assume with the evolutionary view that Israel's early polytheistic divine council theology comes from Ugaritic material, or at least is closely related, then why is it that we cannot also presume Yahweh was king of all the nations when Baal is referred to as, quote, Lord of the earth? Was not Yahweh identified with Baal before the exile? It is hard not to suspect that the answer would be that the, that the data do not fit the picture and are not admissible as evidence. Conclusion. The purpose of this paper was to highlight the major arguments used to assert the evolution of Israelite religion from polytheism to monotheism. This writer rejects this view because the arguments are based on flawed presuppositions brought to terms like Elohim and passages like Deuteronomy 32, 8 through 9 and Psalm 82. His own view is that the biblical writers affirmed an unseen world filled with Elohim, but that term is not to be linked to a specific set of attributes that would result in a denial of the ontological uniqueness of Yahweh and his exclusive worship. This, then, was the orthodoxy of the biblical writers throughout the time of their writing. However, that is not to say that all Israelites, or even a majority of Israelites, believe this at many points in Israelite history. Both the Hebrew Bible and the archaeological remains inform us that there was a broad spectrum of beliefs about Yahweh and his nature among the people. As is the case today, despite the fact that all have full access to the books they consider canonical, there is still diversity of belief about God. How much more in ancient Israel?
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.